I'm really interested in the like the nooks and crannies of life. Like, what does God have to do with Thanksgiving sides? Erin Moon is an author and editor of Bible Studies and Devotionals. She's a podcaster, a wife, and a mom. I'm a like a natural learner. I love a good like Encyclopedia Britannica deep dive. I used to my parents had these like DK books that they kept on our bookshelf at home, and I would just sit and just it was just, it just ate it up. And so like you know I want to know like where faith shows up in Hamilton. Like I think religion and faith it all like weaves throughout our lives and history. And so I'm just really interested in examining that from like a faith perspective. In this episode of Relatable, we'll be exploring the value of curiosity, the need for critical thinking, and the heart of empathy that modern day Christians so desperately need in order to find God's glory in the full scope of the world, not just a safe box we place God in. And how? By opening our souls up to God in unlikely places, we can influence our society in a way that is like the light of a town upon a hill. In Hamilton, there's a song titled Wait For It, sung by the antagonist of the story, Aaron Burr. Burr is one of those villains that captures your empathy. He's had a tragic life, with nearly everyone he's loved having died. The lyrics near the end of the song say, Life doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we make our mistakes, and if there's a reason I'm still alive and so many have died, then I'm willing to wait for it. Just as Burr contemplates in this song, we have purpose in between our birth and death. Scripture tells us to seek the kingdom of God in everything we do. The kingdom's all around us. It's in the music of ocean waves and the streets of Broadway. Erin is so good at finding the kingdom, even in a broken world of rubble. There's this like fringe organization that works on the outer rim of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And their whole purpose is to take like the construction trash that comes from the Muslims rebuilding the Dome of the Rock, which is their Temple Mount. And their whole deal is they, they, they pick up the construction trash that the trucks take out Mm -hmm. and they bring these buckets of rubble Mm-hmm. to this site and you can go and you can volunteer and you you they give you a bucket uh-huh. and they're like you need to look through this bucket every piece of rubble in this bucket to see if you can find something that might have been from the second temple when Jews had jurisdiction over the area and so like they're looking for like a shard of bubbled glass they're looking for uh like like just even like the ti- like anything that might have been a coin, a piece of plaster that was like attached to the building. Like these things are all holy because the temple was consecrated and the temple was holy, even though it's all mixed in with the rubble. rubble. And so like I'm thinking in a faith adjacent way is just like really doing that on like a mental and spiritual level. So it's all like coming from a Genesis point of from God. So I just want to like, I want to grab my bucket of rubble and I want to see what's in there, you know? One of my friends is a first grade teacher. She's always telling stories of the questions her students ask her. Questions like, but how does the matter get inside the chair? How does the zipper work? How do stones get stuck in cement? If the sun is so powerful, how come it doesn't come through the clouds? A NASA study found that of 1,600 four and five year olds, 98% scored at creative genius level. Five years later, only 30% of the same group of children scored at that same level. And again, five years later, only 12%. 
When the same test was administered to adults, it was found that only 2% scored at this genius level. So I think as a whole, um, it seems as though we really belittle curiosity. Like we look down on people who change their minds. Um, We have like completely sacrificed the art of nuance for like the fire of an emphatic mic drop. And so like, whereas you lose a lot of like the deep valleys and the mountains of what you believe in, well, here's my Twitter bio or someone defining you um, from one Instagram post or, you know, something like that. And so I think it's real or like even defining you as you must, you attend this particular kind of church, you must believe everything that they believe, you know? And so I think, I think when we go looking for things like this, it expands our worldview. It helps us become more Christ-like because we're seeing things in our neighbors and ourselves that we didn't know was there. And it's, it's just like working that muscle muscle of compassion, I think, and seeing God in places that we weren't trained to see him. I love how you say that your daughter asks those questions. Oh, she is. She's so funny and so smart and asks questions that I would never ask. Like I remember when she was like three, she looked up at me and she was like, Hey, um, why did God kill the baby dinosaurs? And I was like, okay, well, listen, this is like a funny question on its surface, but underneath it, she's asking like a very complicated theology question. Like, why does God let innocent things, like, why does, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, I think, I think having children, being around children, even if you're not a parent, while, you know, I think is they ask the craziest questions and they want to know so many things. They are so inherently curious. And I think as we grow into adulthood, we've, we really stamp that out. We want, you know, Pete, Pete ends talks about the sin of certainty mm-hmm. and how that's really kind of uh, tamped down all of our desire to learn more in that, well, I've, I'm 21 now, so I have to have all my beliefs figured out. Well, that's not really true. They're constantly morphing. They're constantly evolving. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, normalize, you know, being okay with changing your mind, I think is important. And to like, let go of things that no longer serve your relationship with God, I think is important. It's scary, but I also think it's important. We want certainty, and we fear questions. The author Madeline Langle speaks of her own conversion in relation to her doubts. She said that the German theologians who had answered her questions actually hindered her faith because her questions weren't meant to be answered in the German's finite, laboratory-proof ways. Those answers limited God. The key to Langle's faith was love, not answers. Love could handle her questions because it instilled a trust in God despite the mystery of him. For Langle, it was not the theologians that helped convert her. But the scientists, with their questions, their awed rapture at the glory of the created universe. To look at the world with wonder and curiosity is to look at the world like a child. And Jesus tells us in Matthew we need to become like little children. God is everywhere. He's in nature, he's in the news, he's in our favorite TV show and movie. His creation is all around us, just waiting for us to explore and process and grow with him by approaching these aspects of our culture through childlike curiosity. Unfortunately, Fear beats this wonder and curiosity out of us. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I really loved Jewel 
and her pieces of you album Uh and it was it like I thought it was the pinnacle of all of music history it like spoke to me in my eighth grade romance I just really felt connected when she was like you know you never put wet towels on the floor anymore. I was like, I understand what that means. I didn't really, but I felt so like it made me think about things and it made me pay attention to different things. I had never experienced anything like Joel before in my life. And I, so like, and it just like really awakened me to being more thoughtful and more introspective and paying attention more and imagine how bummed out I was when, uh, you know, a disciple now leader was like, that's, that's sinful. I was like, what? Like, I feel like this has brought me closer to God. Like I, I feel like I'm learning things about the world that I didn't understand prior to this. And it's kind of unlocked something in me that's I feel like has brought me closer to God. And so I think I think that is a story of the fear mm-hmm. that happens when we when we like have a hard time finding finding God in other places. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's there's a reason why people don't like doing that. Right. The power holders don't like doing that because it enables you to think for yourself. It enables you to not need them anymore. It's the same reason the church didn't want to make an English version of the Bible available for commoners to read. It's the same reason why white American slaveholders took out the portions of scripture that talked about freedom. Like they wanted to stay in power. And so I think when we, you know, that that kind of... I guess awakened me to the idea of like some of this is there of course like we are meant to live in community yes 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 but some of this is also between me and the holy spirit and I want to have I want to have a relationship that's not based on someone else telling me what to do where I feel like I've been given freedom through the holy spirit Erin had a very healthy upbringing when it came to relationship with culture outside of the Christian bubble. She grew up with an educator as a mom who let her read as much as she wanted. She was never barred from any books or music. I, I equally loved Jewel and DC Talk. So like that was, the, I had a very healthy upbringing in that. But I do know that I do know a lot of people who were told to deny, um, to erase, to you know, burn those CDs to not watch certain things. And again, you know, there's a, there's a Holy Spirit line to this, I think. Um, But a lot of people who grew up in the time that I grew up, maybe not as much your generation. I mean, you, I think you're a little bit younger than me, but I think we were so, there was so much fear so much fear of getting it wrong or that's how we got purity culture. That's how we got, you know, I think that's what we're seeing as the result of where the church is today. They were told to like, not don't, don't be in the world. Don't engage with the world, be, you know, in the world, but not of the world. But really what that meant was you can't, you can't watch those things because that will poison you and God is not as cool as friends. He's just not. Like that's that was the message that was portrayed when in actuality I I don't I disagree. I don't think that's true, but I think when you say that to a kid, 
they're going to want to go to friends <laughs> and they're not going to want to like critically think about, well, what, what is it about friends that's making that like makes me not turn towards God or, you know, what is it about that? I think we spent so much time on behavior modification. We forgot like soul change. When I was in middle school, I was struggling with a lot of doubt when it came to my faith. I was questioning everything. Was I just believing in God because it was what my parents told me to do? Why is Jesus' story the true one when there are other religions out there? What is this relationship with God supposed to be like in the first place? I didn't really have a youth group to go to with my questions. I was too ashamed to tell my parents. So I carried my doubts by myself. And then I picked up the final Harry Potter book. In it, Harry is questioning Albus Dumbledore, the mentor he loved and believed in. But after Dumbledore's death, not so great stories of Dumbledore's past came out. Harry realized Dumbledore had kept many secrets from him, and Harry discovered the path Dumbledore had set him on might have never been meant to end well for Harry. And then, in the third act of the book, I came upon these lines. Harry did not want to express the doubts and uncertainties about Dumbledore that had riddled him for months now. He had made his choice while he dug Dobby's grave. He had decided to continue on along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore, to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know, but simply to trust. I read these lines and broke into sobs. It was as if God reached out to me through the character of a 17-year-old boy wizard. I felt, not even just felt, but experienced God when I read those two sentences smushed in the middle of a paragraph placed in the center of a chapter. It was as if God was telling me he was acknowledging my struggles, that he heard me, and that he cared. And I walked away from that book forever changed. So when I read later on that there were Christians burning Harry Potter books, I couldn't help but think that if they had experienced what I had experienced reading those words, they'd also have multiple copies of the books scattered throughout their apartment. There's nothing like live theater, and the people who choose to pursue and study the art are a particular type of people. Instead of spending their college days in labs or studying equations, you may find them with their shoes tossed to the side, learning Sanskrit theater dances, or laying on the ground, imagining what it is like to be a rock. This is where you would have found Aaron. I went to school to study theater, which is, I know, an insane thing to say in this economy. But, like, uh, when you act subtext is so important. How you say something, the way your body looks when you say something, the intonation of your voice is way more important than what you're actually saying. Like the dialogue might read as I'm saying, I love you to my character's husband, but the subtext is, I know you're having an affair and I'm going to leave you tomorrow. And so like you're saying I love you, but it doesn't mean what you th what it traditionally has meant. And I think that is kind of in everywhere and in everything. You know, no matter what I'm reading or listening to or watching or experiencing, I'm looking at it through a lens of faith because my faith informs everything about me. I can't look at the world without a lens of faith that just doesn't exist for me. You know, I'm looking for God in the subtext of, of everything. I think a lot about like, um, uh, have you read Madeline LaIngle's Walking on Water? Yes. I love that book. It's, inc it's incredible. And it really has informed a lot of my, like really helped me form a theology around all this. But she says, when we look at a painting or hear a symphony or read a book and feel more named, 
then for us, that work is a work of Christian art. But to look at a work of art and then make a judgment as to whether or not it is art, whether or not it is Christian, is presumptuous. It's something we cannot know in any conclusive way. We can only know if it speaks within our own hearts and leads us to living more deeply with Christ and God. There is nothing so secular that it cannot be sacred. And so I really, that really resonates with me as I am trying to like find God in weird places that we might not look like what the sides you eat at Thanksgiving. I can read a play that was set in the Kabuki era in Japan Mm -hmm. and it can mean absolutely nothing to me. And I think we see this in the Bible too. Like we're reading scripture from our own context. Well, that's not a context that existed until now. And so, and the writers weren't writing in that context and they weren't even, maybe they weren't even writing down the actual scripture in the same context that it was handed down, you know? So you've got, there's so much at play. There's so many ways that you can look at things. This is rich. It's, it is so satisfying and so fulfilling and there's so much here and we'll never be able to learn all of it. And it's so beautiful. And every time you peel back a layer, there's just, there's just more Jesus there. It's crazy. When we let fear and whatever that fear is coming from, fear of losing power, fear of losing freedom, fear of losing oneself, control us. We miss out on all the gold God has sprinkled throughout the culture we create and the nature we live in and the food we eat and the people we laugh with. Because finding God in the world around us is like a treasure hunt. I grew up in a small Texas town. On summer nights, cicadas would sing out from the trees as warm air wrapped around you like a blanket. Since we were so far from any cities, there was hardly any light pollution. I had a habit of arriving home after darkness had fallen, getting out of my car and looking up. I just stand there for minutes at a time, staring at the thousands of twinkling stars above. And for those few minutes, time felt as if it stood still and it was just me and God and all his wonder. Jesus told us that even the stones would cry out his glory. He's everywhere, all around us. We just have to be willing to get out of our cars and look up. I think a lot about science and art. Like we have, the church was a trailblazer for these things at one point. And then they, and now we are, we are missing the blessing of finding him in those places. You know, even the rocks cry out. And I think it will take so long for the church as a whole to recover from the poverty of imagination happening right now. Like God made science. He inspired every bit of art. And I think the answer, the solution is discipleship. You know, I think about this with my kids a lot. Like they, I have one kid that's like, a grade A Pharisee. Like she just love, and she's just very black and white, very, this is right. And that is wrong. And I'm going to die on every hill about what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, they see something that on the surface, it's quote unquote bad. You know, someone uses a bad word or why are you watching that? Why, why can't I be down here when you're watching Game of Thrones? Well, Lots of reasons. But my question to them is like, why is it bad? Why is it good? What is it telling you about God? You know, helping them see through a lens instead of asking them to always conform to a series of exercises that like perform their belief, I think is what discipleship is. You're, you're helping them move through their original 
understandings and thinking more critically about it. I know that some of the people who told others to burn CDs and stay away from certain TV shows or movies were genuinely concerned for these things leading them astray. When you're feasting with tax collectors and prostitutes, there is an influential danger if your own faith isn't solid enough. So how can we find the balance between finding God in the rubble while not letting ourselves become a part of the rubble along the way? You know, I think a lot of that is between you and the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that I or anyone else should tell you about the exact way and amount that culture should influence you. You know, the, those like, we, you know, we were talking about Instagram influencers and celebrity pastors, like those people have a place, but that they cannot replace the Holy Spirit for you. And, you know, I, I think we've traded a lot of biblical wisdom and the Holy Spirit and discernment for just like, just tell me what to do. Like, I'd much rather, like, Derek Webb has that old song that's like, give me a new law. Like, um, I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. So just bring it down to me and I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. You know, I think a lot about like Hallmark movies, like in this idea of we've revert, like we've, you know, kind of misconstrued clean versus good. Mm. Hallmark movies are clean. But if you are a single person who is, has an idol of marriage. Are Hallmark movies like beneficial for you? Are they, or are they detrimental to you? And so I think like you can see, you can take every, like, but Hallmark movies are fine for me. They're bad, but they're fine for me because I know that when the lady who owns the Christmas, you know, the Christmas light store and the guy who's a, you know, the lumberjack, when they get together, they're still going to have marital problems. And that doesn't really bother me. But like, it could really bother someone or really like, stir up feelings of jealousy or anger or, you know, frustration. I think it's all it's, all, it's different for everybody. My relationship with God is personal and it's deep and I have to trust that in other people too. Like I have to trust that other people are doing the work that I'm doing that that, and they have to trust that God is working on me in the same way that God's working on them. Like, and my line of edification is different than your line, than someone else's line. Does that mean that I boast in my line? No. Does it mean that I'm jealous of your line? No. Does it mean that I force my line on you? You know, you were talking about like someone drinking alcohol or someone, you know, I, if someone is, you know, a recovering alcoholic, not gonna I'm not gonna offer them a drink I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that but it's fine it's fine for me in my home when they're not there I think that's what Paul is talking about being all things to all people like paying attention to the people around you and to to really like to really understand what you might be doing to not only your witness but like someone else's picture of Christ I think is so crucial. And I think it goes back to that empathy that you were talking about. If we don't see, if we can't see uh, ourselves in other people in how we want to be treated, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think we're missing the point completely. Mm -hmm. Historically, the church, a Christian played a huge role in things like establishing colleges and universities and centers for learning. Like, art the you know i think of the sistine chapel and the the patronage system of the renaissance you know hospitals literacy science the whole shebang and i think like 
I think where we went wrong was power and greed. The sin of individualism, like, is so rampant. And, you know, when the monks who started the hospitals in Europe in the 1300s were establishing their, their work, they did it because they looked around and they saw people in need. They saw people who were sick, who needed medical help. So they answered the call, you know. So by answering the call, they showed Christ through their work. And it, and it shaped culture for, you know, thousands of years and, or, you know, hundreds of years. And so I think we used to be really good at this. We used to be on the cutting edge of this. And now it's getting, it's getting really hard to do that. In the days before our interview, Erin sends out a newsletter to her subscribers where she admits to being heartsick or, as she says, in her sads. As the year winds down as I'm writing this, I think a lot of us, including Aaron, are realizing that the events of 2020 have affected us more than we'd like to believe they have. We are so fractured. And I know what the church, quote unquote, looks like to outsiders. And I fear that we are shaping culture to the detriment of our witness. I think like, can you imagine if we looked at something as simple as wearing a mask and like universally said, you know what? I don't personally believe that this is doing anything, but it's seen as a symbol of kindness and thought and care towards other people. So collectively, since one of our tenets of faith is to love our neighbor, we're all just going to wear a mask and we're not going to like, we're not going to make a big deal out of it. If Christians led the movement there instead of being like a a doorstop to it, what would, I mean, what would that look like? What kind of witness would that bear? At this time, even as people of faith, it can be hard to find God in church. Yet here we still stand, our hearts still wrapped up in the God we love, even if it does feel a little sick. And we still have a responsibility to shape culture, and that starts with our own community. Erin's family had to quarantine for two weeks due to possible COVID exposure. Her kids passed part of the time by rollerblading. And it's those kids, her family, that she feels she has the most opportunity to shape culture by shaping them like i i really believe we can shape culture in very small but not insignificant ways like when i think of people who work to shape culture i think of mothers i think of activists i think of um nurses i think of teachers i think of people who are just doing the thing that the lord has set before them and doing it well and with the love of Christ. And I really do think, like, we can have a conversation all day about celebrity pastors and Instagram influencers and how they are, quote-unquote, shaping culture for Jesus. And that is a, that is a valid conversation. But, we, but it is also a valid conversation to talk about people who live out their calling just in their communities. Like that is shaping culture. That is, that is sharing Christ with someone. And so I, I hope that I'm doing that with my kids. I hope that I'm doing that in this job that I, you know, I hope that I'm doing that in my marriage. Um, and that is, I think that is where we focus, like doing small, you know, small things with great love, like Mother Teresa said. Theater is a unique art form. The actors put on costumes from time periods they've never lived in, areas of the world they've never traveled, stages of life they've never experienced. The words they speak are not their own. They take on the practice of, in many ways, becoming other people. It's a practice of empathy, of sacrifice and understanding, of a curiosity to wonder, why would this person feel this way? Why do they believe what they believe? And how can I channel those emotions in their experience in myself? 
Erin's education in the theater arts helped instill in her an empathy through which she could imagine different ways to view the world. In her interview, Erin used the phrase, a poverty of imagination when it comes to the current state of our society. We limit ourselves in our view of God by closing our minds. When I say the poverty of imagination, it's it's looking at a text at its face value and not considering that it was written in first century Rome. Uh, it's, you know, looking at a, it's not thinking about all of the different ways that God can show up in places that we wouldn't normally see him in. And I think, uh, you know, we, we have stopped like being, um, I hesitate to say whimsical because I think that's a weird word, but like we have stopped, like there's no play. There's no, there's no critical thinking. There's just, here are the facts. This is what I think. And I'm not listening to anybody else. You know, it's again, you know, a curiosity. It's that questioning. It's that curiosity. I think that we are missing so much of when we, when we just ignore that there could be a totally different way to view a text, a show, a book, whatever. George MacDonald, who was a Scottish author and great inspiration for C.S. Lewis, wrote several fairy tales. One of those tales is called The Day Boy and the Night Girl. In the story, there are two main characters, a boy who is raised in only the day and never allowed to be in darkness, and a girl who only knows the night and never has experienced the sun. One night, the girl is led out of her cave. She explores the world and comes upon the day boy, who has stayed out after the sun went down for the first time in his life. They meet and have to come to understand one another in order to ease their fears and escape a witch. The way they come to this understanding is by using their imagination. The tale carries MacDonald's belief in the imagination's ability to take the focus off of oneself, thereby opening the imaginer to a world of relationships which can lead to true wholeness. In Matthew 10.39, Jesus tells us that whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Through our imagination, we can take the focus off of ourselves and focus more on who Jesus is and who others are. We can learn more about what a full life lived in God's kingdom is meant to be like. Chesterton talks about this. He's like, listen, fairy tales exist. Fairy tales are important, if only for the fact that they help people understand that dragons can be defeated. Like that is a key, like fairy, like I think back so much as Shannon Martin, I don't know if you follow her on Instagram, but she had a great post the other day that was like, I want leaders who read fiction. Mm -hmm. I want leaders. And I think it speaks to what you were saying earlier about like that creates in someone a capacity for other worlds, for other viewpoints, for other perspectives. I mean, I think that's so crucial. Like, you know, bring, bring reading back to leaders. Don't, don't just make them be these staunch, hard, people with no curiosity on how to make things better for society, let them read, let them have that imagination and let that inform their work, I think. What are some facets of unlikely places that are popular now that you believe are particularly reflecting God in the world and culture? You know, I think that is kind of the the beauty of it is that it's it's pretty much everywhere. Like the crown. Yes. Dr. Fauci. Yes. Twitter. Yes. The current political climate. Yes. Like it's all there. Now the, the trick is, is it saying what you want it to say? Mm. No. Mm. Sometimes it can be very damning. It can be, it can show you that like things aren't as you thought they were mm. not as you were taught that they were. It can be extremely unmooring. And that's, that's something I'm 
I'm pretty passionate about is this idea of like you, we hear now like deconstruction is a huge buzzword. I think it's very valid. I don't want to like I don't want to be dismissive of it at all. But I also think in that if you get to the end of your deconstruction where are you reconstructing like what deserves to go back in the house you know and so i think that there is the the world is full of god it just is like it's around every corner and i think you have to train your eyes to look for it your ears to hear it i think that it is it's so important. It's not always going to tell you what you want it to say, but I think that's even more important when it challenges the narrative that you were taught or that you are looking for a confirmation of. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a great quote by John Mark Comer, a, a priest, a preacher in Portland, I believe he is, but in one of his books, he talks about how if God in your head looks like you, sounds like you, has the same political affiliation as you, uh, then you probably have just remade him in your image and yeah. uh, seen him for who he truly is, which Absolutely. totally called me out. Cause I was like, oh, oh, for sure. Like what ways am I doing this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so easy to do, but again, like if you can, and I think you're talking about empathy and I just keep, I go back to uh, acting in theater so much. Like when I'm, when I'm performing a role, I'm literally slipping into someone else's shoes. I've never had an affair, but I've played women who have had an affair. And so there's an empathy there. I've never, you know, lost a child, but I've played women who have lost a child. So there's an empathy there. I can access that to understand other people's perspectives and their kind of shared experience of life. And, and I think we, we do ourselves a disservice and we do ourselves a huge favor when we, well, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore it. And I think we do ourselves a huge favor when we lean into that and we try to understand the world from a different perspective. We're meant to explore and wonder. It's a part of deepening our relationship with God. Proverbs 25 tells us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and to search out the matter is the glory of kings. Questions are good. Curiosity is encouraged. Imagination leads to understanding. So look for God. Open your mind and think critically about the world around you. You may just find God shining through an old Van Gogh painting or a jewel song or a story about teenage wizards or the clouds in the sky. When we search for God in the world around us, we learn more about him and our identity as his child even if the answers we find aren't the finite kind that can be calculated in a lab. But what we will find is a fuller, richer life because it will be a life lived in a world where the treasure of God is everywhere, even amongst the rubble. Thank you, Erin, for being on the podcast. In the show notes, I'll be leaving links to her social media, website, as well as a link to her Lent devotional and community, Memento Mori, which begins in the upcoming weeks. It includes devotionals, prayers, and a non-Facebook community that centers around the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So make sure to check it out if you're looking for something to help you connect to God and others during this Lent season.